Well, welcome everybody to all of our campuses, meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. So glad you made it to church. I want to welcome those of you at our White Bear campus, our Lionel Lakes campus, Spring Lake Park. Forgot about you last night. Sorry about that. Blaine, Woodbury, better watch my notes, Anoka, Wyzetta, Lakeville, and Rochester. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming to church today. I also want to welcome those. Yeah. All right. We're going to clap for you, I guess. Yeah. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online as a part of our congregation. We know that you are out there, so welcome to you as well. And for those of you who don't know, it is deer season in Minnesota. It's a very uh, treasured time in my life, really better than Christmas, I think. But uh, so far, I ha- some of you have been asking, so, so far I have not had great luck. You can pray about that uh, for me. So I'm going to show you last year's buck. This was on Thanksgiving Day, uh, a decent buck. He had... Both G2s broken off. Some of your hunters will know what that is. But so, you know, again, just keep me in your prayers as Thanksgiving is, Thanksgiving is still coming. So uh, this is the final message in our series, Picture Perfect Family, because behind the perfect portraits are very imperfect and flawed people. Gang, there is no such thing as a perfect family because we are all, every single one of us, including me, we are flawed by sin And if you're newer to our church, you might not know about my hunting dog, Blue, who I absolutely love, but who's also a sinner. When he's hunting pheasants, he's absolutely amazing, but he eats coyote scat and other despicable things. Uh, He once grabbed a flattened squirrel uh, while my wife was walking him along the side of the road. It was halfway down his throat with the tail hanging out of his mouth. And my wife yelled at him to drop it. He just looked at her, and then he sucked it down. (laughs) When she came home fuming, she said, you won't believe what your stupid dog did today. I said, well, sometimes you got to suck down a squirrel. (laughs) Now, for those of you who have not seen him or know him, he's got a couple of quirks. One of them is that he loves to howl Whenever he hears a siren, so I'm just going to show you a brief little clip of this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got to love him. But he sins like crazy. I'm telling you, I mean, his biggest sin is when he disappears and runs away, runs away. So we yell for him up and down the streets like crazy people until some neighbor four blocks away comes walking up the street with blue on a leash and he or she'll say, is this your dog? And we'll say, yeah. And you know, he, he went down to play with their kids or he came over to visit their party. Twice I had to retrieve him from inside somebody's house, just made himself right at home. Alongside his love for life is this streak of disobedience. Now, last time he ran off, he was gone for six hours. I was so tired of this that I told my wife, I said, I've had it. I'm done with this dog. And when I told about that time in church, this was about a year ago, people started sending me things anonymously. One person sent a GPS collar so I could keep track of them. Another, another sent an electric fence, believe it or not, which we already have one of those. Uh, person, another person sent a glow collar, and this is amazing. You put it around his neck, and it glows in the dark, so when you let him out, you can see wherever he is. Another person 
sent a treat basket full of doggy treats, all kinds of different things. I wish they'd send me a treat basket. <laughs> Evidently, the thought here was, you know, bribery will help my dog obey or treats will help him obey. But here's the problem with all of that. Those are just bandages for a disobedient heart. He wouldn't need a glow collar, electric fence, or GPS if he just obeyed his master. I mean, think about it. He's got a great life. Doesn't work. <laughs> takes naps. Doesn't pay for meals. But ask him to obey, and he's like, forget it. Anybody have a son or daughter like this, by the way? You know, doesn't work. Takes naps. Doesn't pay for anything. But ask him to obey, and he's like, get off my case. It's like, whoa. So you set up curfews. You put a tracking device on his phone. Try to bribe him with treats. <laughs> Those are all just bandages for the real problem, which is a disobedient heart. Send them to my house, man. I'll, yeah. This, this final message, this final message is keep God at the center. Keep God at the center of your family, your decisions in life. And here's the reason, because whatever is at the center of your life will drive and determine the outcomes of your life. So I want to ask all of you, what's at the center of your life? If God's at the center, your life will go one way. If something else is at the center, your life is going to go another way. For example, if money is at the center or entertainment, or sport, a sports team, body image, or sex, your life is going to go a completely different way. There's all kinds of things that pull at my dog's heart. Squirrels, the mail truck, his girlfriend, Sheila, and he's just, she's just a mutt. I don't know what he sees in her. <laughs> he's got a thousand different reasons to run off and do his own thing, and he thinks that's going to bring him freedom. But it doesn't bring him freedom. It brings him shock collars and electric fences and eventual death if he keeps it up. Not from me, but he's going to get hit, you know, lost, whatever. The Bible talks about this, by the way. It says the penalty for sin is some sort of death. Death in our relationships, death to our joy, death to our career sometimes. Whenever we're involved with some sort of sin, there's a penalty there's a consequence, and the Bible says it's really death. And then he goes on to say, so don't let sin be at the center of your life. Don't let it be your master. Instead, Paul goes on to write, he says, look, rather be controlled, let your life be controlled, not by sin or some other thing, but by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit lives in you, and by the way, the Spirit of God lives within every believer. But sometimes sin gets in there and it controls us rather than the spirit. So there's this entity where we need to ask God's spirit to control us and be at the center of our lives. To, to be clear, money is not sin. Uh, money's a big deal in our lives. Money's not sin. Money is nor morally neutral. It's when money becomes the center driving everything I do. Entertainment's not sin necessarily. 
know, traveling to find places, having nice things is not sin unless those things are at the center instead of God. Sex, by the way, is not sin, thank God for that. Sex is a God, is a God-ordained gift intended to create intimacy and oneness between a man and a woman in marriage. But when sex becomes an obsession, when it becomes the driving force in my life, it's not long before it becomes misused and people get hurt. Marriages end, families blow apart, and careers get terminated. Anytime sex gets misused, it causes pain. I walked into work Monday morning, and the first thing I saw sitting on the coffee counter was this triple chocolate cake, which isn't sex, but it was triple chocolate cake. And I'm like, oh man, it's right up there. <laughs> but if I let my love for chocolate be the driving force in my life, I'll die at 63. Nothing wrong with chocolate. It's what I do with it. Nothing wrong with money. It's what I do with it. It's what I do with sex. It's what I do with my entertainment choice. And if God's not at the center driving my decisions, I will be a mess. So once again, what's at the center of your life? And full disclosure, sometimes God is at the center of my life and sometimes something else squeezes him out. And I fumble the ball. Uh, because whatever's at the center will drive and determine your life and lead to either great blessing or great loss. Love this little simple verse, Colossians 1.17. In him, some things hold together. Doesn't say that, does it? In, th in him, most things. In him, all things. If he is at the center, all things in your life, in our world, in him, all things are held together. In him, your life is held together. Your marriage is held together. In him, your family is held together. It also means that without him, everything begins to crack and fall apart. So I want to talk to you about keeping God at the center of your life and family. And it doesn't mean that you don't hunt, fish, or play golf. It means you invite God into those things, into making decisions about how much I do of those things and who I do them with. It means inviting God into the everyday things that we do. And the question is, how do we keep God at the center so that you and your family will be held together? So that your life will experience the fullest blessing of God. Three ways here. First of all, you gotta make Faith and God personal. You know, the first five books of the Bible contain the story of how God chose this tiny little nation, Israel, and they, there was nothing special about them. In fact, the Bible says they were stubborn, they were hard-hearted, they were disobedient, they weren't the pick of the litter. But God needed somebody to bless the nations, to bless the, the world. And so he picked this nation, he said, I'm going to invest in you. And he chose a leader out of that nation, Moses, and he gave Moses 10 commands. He said, look, there's just 10. They're not that difficult. You know, have no other gods before me. Just worship me as your God. Don't use my name in vain or carelessly. Don't swear using my name. 
keep the Sabbath day holy like all of you are, go to worship once a week. And then God said, you know, try not to lie to each other. It's not that. Try not to take each other's stuff. And if you could, try not to kill each other. I mean, this is just basic stuff. And God said, look, if you get this, you'll have it. You'll have a pretty good life. But God knew before this nation would get it, he knew that each family in that nation had to get it. And he knew that if before each family got it, the parents had to get it. And so in Deuteronomy 6, he says, these commands I'm giving to this nation are to be on your hearts, parents. Faith in God and obedience to commands starts with parents and grandparents. And I want to ask parents, is this true for you? Is knowing God, pursuing faith in Christ, obeying his word, are, are these things imprinted on your heart, parents, grandparents? Do you know what the Bible says about honesty, for example? And are you living that? About morality, sexual conduct, materialism, and contentment. Are you living these things out? Because nothing else comes close to the influence that a parent has on their kids. Nothing compares. TV doesn't compare, friends, social media, nothing. Simply put, parents, if you want your kids to follow Christ, then you must follow Christ. If you want your kids to be honest, then you must be honest. If you want them to be moral, then you as parents must be moral. How you live your life, parents, is the single most important influence in your children's life. So make faith personal because a godly family starts with godly parents and godly grandparents. Second way is you got to make God and faith relational. Because the mistake a lot of families make today is they are experience rich, but relationship poor. It means that kids are full of experiences today, aren't they? You know, two to three sports, weekend tournaments, parties, constant stream of social media. You know, can't get through a soccer practice without checking Instagram or sucking on a juice box. I mean, come on. A little scratch on the knee, give them a juice box. You know, they miss a goal, give them a juice box. Juice box salt, give me a break. You know, don't get me going on this again. Uh, uh, kids today are experience rich relationship poor. And here's the problem with that. The future success of your children will not depend on the experiences he or she has at parties, practices, or weekend tournaments. By the way, our kids did all of that. But their success will depend almost entirely on their relationship with you as their parent and their relationship with God as their heavenly father. I can tell you, and I, you know, I'm older in life now, I can tell you, whatever success I've experienced in life did not come from watching movies, playing sports, or getting the latest iPhone upgrade. Honestly, it was from my relationship with my mom and dad 
and my relationship with Jesus Christ who has guided my life and gave me the foundation to build my own family and career. You know, most of you know that the Bachelor Bachelorette TV show just drives me insane. And so I got to talk about it once in a while. I mean, you have 12 women or whatever, how many there are, all vying for one guy who gets hot and steamy with each one and then chooses one for his lifelong mate that lasts about a week. And you have to wonder, who are these women? You know, who would sign up for that? A leading psychologist said it this way, most of these women grew up in a home where their dad didn't give them the attention they needed to form a strong self-worth. They grew up in a home that was relationship poor, and so they went looking for any kind of experience to fill the void. So in raising our daughter, I made sure that we did dad and daughter things, took her to breakfast, Took her on a few trips. I pitched in our backyard. I pitched thousands of softballs to her until she could finally hit it and hit it well. Because when she played softball in gym class, I didn't want her to strike out and be made fun of. I wanted her to rip a line drive past the nose pierced kid who pitched it to her <laughs> and thought he might have a chance with her. And by the way, nothing, is, our drummer has a nose. Pierce knows today. He's not on stage now, but I, I saw him last night. I said, Sorry about that. And I, I have no trouble. I have no trouble with guys wearing, you know, no, nose rings or whatever you want. I don't, I don't care. Just don't date my daughter. Uh, or my granddaughters. Have at it. Honestly, I don't care. <laughs> You're not my kid. Same with my son, though. Same with my son. I wanted him to know that his dad loved him more than anything. Because I knew that if David, I spent time with him, invested in him, sacrificed for him and my daughter, I knew then that they would, that they would listen to the things that I wanted him to do and avoid. So you got to make God and faith relational. And then third, you got, you got to make knowing God intentional because if God is personal in your life as a parent or grandparent and you've made it relational, it's, it, that's not enough. You actually have to be intentional with faith. And so right after God gave these Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, he said, look, these commands I'm giving you today are to be on your hearts, parents. Now watch this. But impress them on your kids. Talk about these things when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. Write them on the door frames on your homes. In other words, everywhere you go. At home, after school, on the way to practice, put a Bible verse in their backpack. Talk about what they learned at church. Why? So that it will go well for you and for them. So that. Life will go well so that your kids will gain wisdom and avoid life-damaging choices. That's why you do this. So that you'll experience God's favor in your life and his protection so that you and your family will see God do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. Have you experienced this? 
I mean, do you ever just wake up and say, I can't believe my life in a good way? God has done immeasurably more than I could ever possibly imagine. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom. Put God at the center of your life and his righteousness. Pursue right things. And all these things that we worry about in life will come together. But he's got to be at the center. The Bible says God will do immeasurably more for those who have him first in their life and those who don't tend to miss these things. Sometimes I hear parents say, Bob, we're not going to be intentional with our faith. We want our kids to discover their own beliefs. Yeah, right. You would never do that with their education. You'd never do that with sports. If your kid came home and said, hey, I don't feel like going to school or hockey practice tomorrow, you'd say, you're going. You know, parents who say, I'm just going to let my kids form their own beliefs are really saying, I'm going to let reality TV form their beliefs. I'm going to let Lady Gaga form their beliefs because there's a void there and they're looking to other figures then and they'll be lost spiritually. The Bible says, look, impress these things. There's an intentionality. Impress these things. Talk about these things wherever you are. So what's at the center of your life and home? Again, nothing wrong with sports. I love sports. Nothing wrong with travel, money, property, or bodybuilding, which I do on a regular basis with my purple weights. <laughs> but if any of those things are at the center, you're going to make bad decisions. And you're going to wander off course. And you're going to miss the immeasurable, unimaginable favor and blessing of God. Keep them at the center. About a year ago, our, our daughter-in-law, Sarah, was nine weeks pregnant with their second child, and they went in for a routine checkup. But then our family was met with some news that no family wants to hear. When the tech did an ultrasound, David and Sarah noticed some concern, and she kept searching. But after a thorough exam, she looked up and she said, I'm so sorry. I don't detect a heartbeat. I'm afraid, she said, this is no longer a viable pregnancy, and given the way things look, I don't think it's been viable for quite some time. I'll go get a doctor. The doctor came in, and after looking, confirmed the baby was not alive. And an immediate flood of grief and loss came over them, and as Dave and Sarah held each other in their darkest moment, crying, the doctor lovingly explained the options that they could have. They could take medication to start a miscarriage. They could give the baby time to expel naturally, which is very difficult. Or they could have a DNC to remove the baby surgically. That was on a Monday. So they scheduled a DNC for the following Thursday. They gathered their things and walked down the hospital corridor under the darkest cloud of grief imaginable. Phone calls were made. We all cried. I cried quietly as I told David on the phone how much I loved him, and I'd be praying for him and Sarah. And then I was very careful how I said this. I said, David, I don't know why this is happening, and I don't have the answers, but I know that God is with you. And God is powerful. 
So I hope it's okay with you, but I'm going to be praying for a miracle because I know that God does at times do miracles. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he can raise this child. I said, I'm not saying he will do that, but if it's okay with you, that's going to be my prayer. And he said, please, Dad, pray that prayer. Sarah told me later a verse she clung to after learning their son didn't have a heartbeat was 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. I want to show it to you. We don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced. We were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been so burdened by something that it was beyond your strength and that you didn't know if you could live? In fact, the verse goes on, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He he delivered us from such a deadly peril before. And our hope is that he'll do it again. Despite their apparent loss, Dave and Sarah turned to God. And they saw it as a chance to rely completely on him, no matter what happened. And maybe that's where some of you are today. That you're facing a situation in your family. And there's no answer. But maybe this is where you just have to say, God, I'm turning to you because I have nowhere else to go. Will you answer our prayer? Well, the next day, my son didn't have peace. Said that something wasn't right in his spirit. He had a prompting from God, he said, that was essentially urging him not to accept this report that the baby was no longer alive. He wasn't in denial. He said the prompting was so strong that he couldn't ignore it. And so they asked for another ultrasound on Wednesday, the day before they were to go in to expel the baby. That before they had this DNC procedure, they insisted on having one more ultrasound. And they went in, and on top of the chart, it said, ultrasound, confirm pregnancy loss patient request. Which means this second ultrasound would not have happened had they not requested it. They went back to the same room. The tech greeted them somberly, said that she would make it fast and that she would get a picture for Sarah that she wanted. She applied the monitor and suddenly there was a bright flash on the screen. Being very careful, the tech paused and stopped. Dave and Sarah were holding hands. She looked at the screen for five seconds and said, that's a heartbeat. This is a viable pregnancy. And then she said, I am so sorry. Dave and Sarah were crying. They said, don't be sorry. This is fantastic news. The tech ran out to get a doctor who was headed for surgery, and he couldn't be bothered. But she said, you need to come. The merits have a heartbeat. 
And when he came into their room and verified what he saw, he said, I've, I've seen a lot in 30 years. This is top three. See you both in a week. The days that followed their case was studied by a team of 10 experts. It was sent to Yale University. When these experts compared the pictures of Sarah's womb from Monday and Wednesday, they said, these are two different wombs, and I quote, the only explanation is these are two different mothers. We have no explanation for this. There wasn't a failure in technology or equipment. There wasn't a failure in detection. The doctors and techs did everything right. We believe that Silas David Merritt is here because God did a miracle. People can doubt that. They can say it must be something else. But I stand before all of you today in full belief that in God's mercy, he brought a dead baby back to life. And we believe he did it so that the name of Jesus Christ would be made known and that people would come to trust him. I want you to know that David, Sarah, and my wife and I discussed at length whether to share this with all of you or not. In fact, I had decided not to do it. But I also had a prompting. Because this is very personal and there's a real risk of being misunderstood. But in the end, we wanted God to get the glory and we wanted to exalt the powerful name of Jesus. And if this can help just some of you come to faith or give hope, then we decided the risk was worth it. But mostly we hesitated to tell it because some of you have prayed those same prayers and a miracle didn't happen. And even now you're grieving and questioning God's goodness or if he's even real. And I get that. I have stood next to young parents who had to ba bury their baby and it's not right. There are no words for that. I was in a hospital room a while back when a young dad lay on his back sobbing with a hood up over his head and he was holding on his chest his dead baby boy who was born stillborn. It was the hardest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's not because somebody's faith is stronger or weaker than somebody else's faith. Our daughter lost a baby. My nephew and niece. And they're here today. And their faith is just as strong as Dave and Sarah's faith. And we prayed the same prayers for a miracle, but it didn't happen, and we don't know why. Many of David and Sarah's best friends have not experienced this outcome, and there's no explanation that I know of. I don't know why God allows one outcome over another. I don't know why tragic things sometimes happen to good godly people, and I don't know why God chose to intervene for Dave and Sarah. All I know is that God answered their prayers and did a miracle. Now hear me. And that a miracle most likely would not have happened if Dave and Sarah were not Christians and did not believe in God and didn't have a lot of people praying for them, people of faith, we believe a miracle would not have happened 
If David wasn't sensitive to God's spirit working in his life, we believe a miracle would not have happened. If God was not at the center of their life. But his favor showed up in a miraculous way. And it would not have happened otherwise, we believe. Gang, I still believe that nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe this? I actually believe this. I have to believe this. I still believe in Romans 8, 28. It says, we know something. It's not a guess. We know that in all things, God is working for good. Not all things are good things. Sometimes it's tragic things, and we don't have an answer. We don't understand why. But we know something that even in the worst possible things, we know that God is still at work for good. Here's the qualifier for those who, what? Love him. For those who have him at the center of their lives, it doesn't mean that life is going to go great all the time, even for those who love him. But we do know that God is good. And God still responds. And God can raise the dead. He can raise a dead marriage. He can raise a dead soul. So don't give up on God. Don't give up on prayer. Keep God at the center. He can do the impossible. He's still at work. Some of you here today, maybe, have something in your life that has died. Maybe there's something in your family right now that is dying. I just want to ask you, will you, this is really hard to ask you to do this. Will you still trust him? Will you still say, God, I don't understand this. Why this happened or why this is happening. But will you still trust him? Will you still pray? Will you still worship him as the one who loves you? And it does have a plan for your life. Second question I just want to raise as we close today is God at the center of your life. Again, I confessed earlier that sometimes in my life he is and sometimes he isn't. But if he's not been at the center of your life for quite some time, will you, will you ask forgiveness for that? Will you ask God to come back, take up residence, fill you with his spirit, fill you with his love, joy, peace, power. God wants to give you so much more than anything else in this world can possibly do. And so at all campuses and those of you online, let's just pray for a second. We'll be dismissed. God, thanks so much for your love for us. We've sung about it today. We've talked about it. And God, we all mess up. We all fumble the ball. So thank you for your forgiveness that I need every single day. Thank you for your mercy. And God, thank you that you 
still do miracles. And God, most of us, this is true for me, just getting out of bed every day is a miracle. Experiencing life and breath and goodness and to be able to have food in the morning and to be able to walk every single day. I am a walking miracle and I take that for granted so many times. But then every now and then you do something that just blows our mind. So God, thank you for the daily miracles. And thank you for those mind-blowing, unimaginable, unexplainable miracles. You're still at work. We still love you. We worship you and praise you in this moment. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you need prayer, come on up. Thanks for coming out, everybody. God bless.